And I think we might have a guest joining us. Mommy. Well, speaking of children. Mommy. Yes. We're not watching one. Okay, you can have another one. Well, but we're watching so many. That's Yes. So adorable. I can cover my face. That's what it is. You do. You have a mask. Where's my mask? You have to go find it. We have a little Spider-Man who's looking for his Spider-Man mask. I'm not Spider-Man. Thank you. Spider-Man's cool. There's a kid Spider-Man, and I am. Okay. Well, Spider. Did he find the mask? Good. Oh, I see the t-shirt. That makes sense. Yes. Well, yeah, some of my friends are going to buy it. Um, yeah. There we go. <laughs> it's real. There we go. It's real life. That's perfect. That's going to be the blooper reel for this episode. I kid you not. That's perfect. Perfect. Spider-Man comes to save the day. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Different Boat, Same Storm, a video podcast aimed at kindling empathy amidst a global pandemic. Today, we have another very, very fascinating guest with us, Kate Banting, the head of social impact and marketing at Boston Consulting Group Canada. Kate and I, finally, the last time we met, we recorded another podcast episode, which you should also go check out at a different time. So this really is, funnily enough, a commonality between us. It's been such a pleasure to have you, Kate, today. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. How are you doing, Kate? It's been a while since we spoke. And you, you were just mentioning before we recorded that March 1st was the last time ye, we spoke because that's the last time you use your voice memos app. <laughs> yeah, things, things have been good. Um, it's, it's great to see the progress that Canada is making um, as a country and going back out into the world. So that's been um, a lot of fun. We actually went out into the world this weekend, so that has been good. Um, and then from a from a work perspective, lots of, of action going on. There's a, a lot of work in the social impact space that's happening right now um, that we're able to be at the forefront of, which has been very exciting. Wow! Wow! Yeah, the long the long awaited awakening from the slumber that Canada has had for this year and a bit. Uh, and we will dive into all of your work later, but. Before that, why don't I let you uh, take the floor and, ex- you know, uh, tell the guests what it is that you do, because I know what you do and I know it is a lot. So I'll let you take the, take the lead. Sure. What, what I do, I actually have a, a very, very cool job. So <laughs> I work um, at, uh, at BCG here in Canada and I have two, two portfolios. So I manage marketing for BCG in Canada and I, market, I manage social impact for BCG in Canada. So two quite different. And I also do some marketing of social impact. So they do come together at times. Um, on the marketing side, thinking about BCG's brand and making sure that we're upholding all of our global policy, working with our global team um, across a, a large range of, of activity. And then on the social impact side, thinking about how we as a firm in Canada can make an impact. So we do that in a bunch of different ways, um, engaging employees actively. We know that 90 plus percent of BCGers join because they want to get involved in the social impact space. So I spend my time thinking about how to get them involved and how we can drive the biggest impact um, using uh, a range of different levers to make a difference in the world. Very fun. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. That does sound fun. Well, so then I guess we'll cut to the chase then. 
how do you get involved? Yeah, so um, we have a, a couple different ways. So we think about how BCG is making an impact um, on and the social impact space globally. We're doing a lot of work. Uh, so we do that through um, primarily and the biggest impact we're having, and we can come back to this one because it's a very interesting topic, is how um, we can support our corporate partners to be better global citizens. And that is just exploding. We've had 900 cases over the last year alone um, in the space where corporations are asking for help. They want to be more socially responsible. All of the E, S, and the G are all critical as we're thinking about environmental impact, the social impact, and the governance impact. And how do we actually make corporations good global citizens and are helping drive them to make the world a better place. So that is exploding. I unfortunately don't get to work on many of those projects, but I do uh, do know about all of our great work because we work with many of the largest corporations in the world and they're all worried about this. Um, then we also have our global social impact partners. So we, we partnered with the World Food Program, with, uh, with Teach for All, with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and then uh, a bunch of other partners to support them in their mission. And there's been a huge need, especially during COVID, for us to, to provide additional support there. Again, very cool stuff. I don't work on personally, but get to talk about. Um, I do work on the other four areas um, more locally. So thinking about where our pro bono work. So where we can, similar to what we do for the global um, partners, we do work for Canadian partners. So there are Canadian nonprofits that we have a chance to work with on a regular basis uh, and support them and actually staff a full BCG consulting team that go in and do strategy consulting for a nonprofit. Um, so we select those and uh, I help facilitate that whole process each year. So we typically do four to five of those major projects a year. Um, and then the second um, element is what we call magic time projects, which are very similar, but our, our, our teams work in magical time. Off the um, that we create in in and around their regular casework. So uh, while you're while people are fully staffed on a corporate piece of work, they'll spend a couple hours with me a week working on some really interesting stuff. And I'm happy to talk about three of those that are going on right now that are super cool. Um, we also have volunteering, which um, it sounds like the other one, but the difference is typically it's not to using the consultant toolkit. So we had our day of care on Friday where we went out into the community and we had over 100 staff volunteering their their services in multiple different ways from resume reviews for homeless women that are trying to get back into the workforce to supporting building community gardens to beautifying a location um, and also making art for people's new homes as they're moving into a, a temporary home so we had a, a whole group of people doing art for them uh, and then the last one's all about awareness and how do we raise awareness and funds to support organizations that need it most. So we've got that. We partner with the United Way. We do an employee matching program. And then um, and then right now, um, that piece I've also worked into our reconciliation working team group. So spending some time thinking about what we as a company can do to support reconciliation, support Indigenous peoples in Canada and the role that we should and need to play. So that I typically falls in there. It's kind of also in our DE&I agenda, which I work on in a couple of different aspects as well. So a really fun portfolio, have a chance to work with hundreds of, of staff um, every year on a whole bunch of different ways. Um, so lots of ways to get involved to answer that specific question. Wow. Well, I feel like that itself could be a podcast episode on its own. Uh, and I mean, it, there was so much there that I that just immediately attracts me. I mean, I, I guess the first thing that came at the end was reconciliation, which is possibly as topical as any topic can get in in a Canadian context. 
more so than even the larger context given recent uh, happenings. And I'm wondering with all your background in education uh, and of course working in this space now and working on reconciliation, what has that been like and what do you envision is the path that we can take, especially not just as big corporations, but on an individual level, on an everyday basis? Yeah, it's such a good question and such a difficult one for us to navigate, right? So um, there's this massive issue. And I think the first step of all and of any of this is um, acknowledging there's an issue. (laughs) There is a tainted past to Canadian history that uh, a lot of us struggle to acknowledge. So let's think about Canada Day for a second and very controversial. Like, should we celebrate Canada Day or should we not celebrate Canada Day? Like, is it Canada's really birthday? Well, that's a construct that we created around what we think is a something to be proud of. And I'm a very proud Canadian. And I also acknowledge that we as proud Canadians have a tainted history that we need to also understand and acknowledge. So that balance of like, do I introduce my children to, do we celebrate Canada Day and do we wear our own shirts? We sure did. We did both. And we, cause I, I do feel like the Olympics are coming up. I, I, I'm a proud Canadian. I'm also um, a very understanding of that we don't, we're all not perfect. So what can we as individuals do? I think first is acknowledge and the second is educate. So how do we get the information? How do we find out what has really happened? What is the real story? And I think that I, I, from an education perspective, going to the actual like structural education, our, our country has failed. Uh, I assumed that every kid in Canada learned the same things that I learned as a child about the history of Indigenous peoples here. And we went, I went to a powwow and I knew all about the and I knew about uh, uh, in um, residential schools and I I played in longhouses and teepees and learned about the three sisters and I was like, doesn't didn't every kid do that? And then I show up at in my adult life and nobody had and like even like my husband's mother who was a teacher learned about this stuff while I while we were dating like long after she <laughs> finished teacher's college and been teaching for years it hadn't come up so the education system I think has really failed at teaching the real history of Canada and I know that's changed I know that's changed because of my kids and their schooling experience and understanding this is to, is, a, is a true part of it and like orange t-shirt day so symbolic, so critical, um, but super scary. And so they're introducing it. So here, here's uh, my, my, my daughter, when she was five, was in junior kindergarten and went off to our local school and very excited and having a great, great first couple of weeks and figuring out school is, is fun and all the benefits of that. And comes home one night and tells me, mom, are they gonna take me away? First words out of her mouth when she saw me that evening, I said, no, no one's going to take you. Well, we read a story today at school and they, they took the kids away and they just came in and took the kids away. And then their parents didn't get to see them anymore. Like, okay, hold it together. (laughs) You got this Kate, but, um, and like they're introducing it in kindergarten now in this education system, which I think is critical, right? We need to acknowledge that this happened and this happened in different ways. And I saw some interesting children's books this weekend um, when we were out and about for the first time um, around that and that story. And like the fr- I opened one of them on the first page was I wanted to go to school. Dad said that school wasn't safe and I shouldn't go, but I wanted to go. And it was like, that's a very also an interesting narrative. And how do you pull out these narratives of like, what was that child's experience and why like the kids wanted to go? 
and the parents said no, and then they went. Or um, we had a really amazing woman, um, elder, come and speak to us a couple of weeks ago um, and talk to us about her history and her experiences in residential schools and that she didn't go. Her mother went to a residential school and it broke her. Her mother never said, I love you. Her mother never hugged her. So this woman grew up without, without that love from her parent, which is innate. Like we all are like, I hug my kids constantly and her mother never hugged her. And so she blamed her grandmother. She said, grandma, how would, did you let them take my mother to that terrible place and ruin her? So now I have no real mother. I have this figure that is a ghost of a human that can't come to terms with her experiences. And so that generational impact and like, how do we learn that story? How do we hear? How do we listen to the elders and get educated on it so that it is never replicated? And it's an experience that is quite different. I, I think that that idea of listening and understanding and listening to understand, and that's the big thing of that first step of reconciliation is acknowledging that it happened, listening and understanding the stories, and then digging into it. And a lot of us, unfortunately, have been trained to have biases and to see issues as issues and not understand the reason and the rationale. So we as individuals, I think, need to think to, to acknowledge, to read, to understand, to find the stories, to find the opportunities to listen and to, to get knowledge ourselves, and then move to the action. And the action is tricky. So fortunately, there was this Truth and Reconciliation Committee that came up with 92 calls to action to, to, to identify what we as individuals and what government and what corporations can do. So that's a good place to start um, while looking for actions to take um, and finding out how we as individuals can make a role. On the corporate side, there's some, some there's three specific ones that they've actually called out that we should be working on. So those ones around meaningful consultation, um, equitable access to jobs, training, education, and education um, for management and staff in the history of Aboriginal peoples. So the time at which it came out, they were called Aboriginal peoples. We're now moving to Indigenous peoples, which is uh, always a challenge when we're continuing to change our vernacular. Um, and that's been an interesting conversation in, in itself of where, where the terms come from. And I spend time with my parents this summer um, and my mom, uh, she's like, it changes every year. How do I, how do I keep up? <laughs> so when she was a teacher, she had it all down. And now over time, um, and even in the U.S. versus Canada, we use very different terms. So being cognizant of, of those as well. So the actions that we can take about how do we understand and cooperate and, and support support folks, people's histories and understanding their histories. Um, I, I love the celebration. So again, my kids were home in um, virtual school all year this year, uh, which get very challenging from a social perspective. And uh, But we were, we've been very privileged and we, we were able to support that. But also you get the insight into what's happening in the classroom. What are they looking at? What are they studying? What is it? And I got a chance to attend a virtual powwow. And we learned all about um, Indigenous dancing. And we had, there's a whole bunch of beautiful stories and incorporating all of the history. Um, we think about Canada as a, a patchwork of, of a patchwork quilt as opposed to a melting pot. And that is truly what it is. And we think about all the different cultures and experiences that we have the opportunity to learn about. And why shouldn't our Indigenous histories be at the, at the forefront in our uh, as we're thinking about those groups. So understanding history, I've kind of rambled there, but meaningful consultation. And then equitable access, I think, is a very interesting one. Of what role can we play to ensure equitable access? 
And then you get into a whole bunch of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations and topics about how do we make sure we're creating opportunities for all people that live in Canada and not just the elite and the ones that have had multi-generational privilege, but also folks that haven't had multi-generational privilege and may have had actually multi-generational trauma and helping those folks overcome those issues to change and flip the switch um, and, and moving out. And that's something that I think from my other experiences working with other groups of um, multi-generational poverty that have some similarities to that you can start to, to think about how do we how do we make those changes. For sure, for sure. Uh, well, that was beautiful and pristine. Again, a lot to unpack there, but one thing that really stood out to me from everything and something that resonates very much with the part with different books in Storm itself is the focus on stories, the need for stories. Because I think we inadvertently empathize only when we hear stories. We don't empathize with facts. We will sympathize with them at best and we'll feel bad, but we won't empathize with them because I think stories just have an innate ability for us to be, for us to be transported to the place and the circumstances of the story. And we need more of that for us to be able to truly understand what exactly is the indigenous experience in the country that we now call Canada. And I think I'd go one step further in saying that it's not just the history, it's the present. And if we don't do anything about it, then the future as well. It's happening every single day around us and uh, it, it's not monolithic it's it's constantly dynamic it's constantly moving and changing and the only thing that I, I think we can do is as you said bring give voices to the people that we are seeking to to understand uh their grievances uh without which it's it's not a futile attempt but it is an incomplete attempt at best. Yeah, totally. So how do we how do we find their voices and how do we elevate the voices and how do we create the, the opportunities and the forums? And if we think back to why are there so many great Canadian artists? Well, there was a content requirement on all Canadian radio, on all Canadian television to have Canadian content. It worked. What is the equivalent now to create Indigenous content? There is so much demand right now to hear the stories, to have access to. Um, when you walk into the library and I'm like, yes, where's that Indigenous section? Because that's the books I want to bring home to my family. What's the Indigenous art that I can put on my wall? What are the other elements of how do I immerse myself and hear the stories and create opportunities and create those platforms for that opportunity? And then how do we think about the, 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 the next level, right? Is what's happening today from an, from an arts perspective, from a storytelling perspective, from a media perspective, and then also from a um, business perspective. What is that list of the, the indigenous owned businesses? And I had the privilege of, of doing a little tiny bit of work in conjunction with Manitoba Mucklucks and got to know some of the folks that work there and immediately bought a pair or two. Um, but also like they're priced at, the same price as Uggs. They are a premium product, not all are handmade, but they employ predominantly Indigenous peoples. And they use the historic craft to complement the current manufacturing to create a high quality product. And just everywhere we've woven into the story is that Indigenous history. And where the folks met and how they actually kicked it off 
was from a group that was working with how do we help start Indigenous businesses in Manitoba. And that group that brought together a couple folks that were able to then make the, the, this take off. So how do we find those and how do we create more opportunities and elevate the stories, I think, is exactly what we need to do. Right. What I'm, what I'm hearing there, that's beautiful, by the way, uh, is intentionality. There has to be intentionality from our end to seek those stories, to seek the people that have those stories and those experiences uh, and those skills. Uh, because clearly, even if you can create demand, if we don't create an environment where people feel comfortable enough and confident enough and safe enough to supply, then that will just lead to a gap. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a good point and, and one of the challenges. So right now we're looking at how do we increase uh, number two of equitable access to jobs. So we would like to hire some indigenous people. If you're indigenous and you'd like to come work for us, we will not, we, we're, we're hiring all kinds of people but we're trying to make a concerted effort to increase our indigenous representation. Well, how do we do that? Where do we go? Who do we support? How do we create those ties? And we realized that most of the locations where there's higher um, representation of indigenous peoples are less familiar with the consulting industry. So how do we bring the consulting industry to those areas? How do we think about the ponds where, if we're gonna go, we're not fishing in ponds, but the analogy of, if you are trying to catch a fish that doesn't exist in this pond, you're probably never going to catch it because you need to go to a different pond to find that. And so how do we think about the intentionality of not looking where you've always looked? And our total DEI strategy has been that of like, wow, we're really good at hiring from these three schools. That doesn't mean that's the only place we can hire. And to be successful long term and for us to continue to evolve as a corporation, as well as the, as an industry, as Canadians, we need to start thinking differently. We need to think broader. We need to create both. The, we need to create the demand, which we have. But how do we also support the supply? And how do we think about that realm? Um, right. Early, early in my career, I did some really interesting magic time work, um, and I was working with the global education practice area. Um, we actually before it was even that, and I actually am looking. I've got this little toy um, school that they gave me coming out of the work that Aww, had sitting on my desk cute. to remind me of the, the work. But what, what we looked at is how do corporations think about filling their, their filling their pipeline of, of staff up. And there were, a, there's a huge realm of ways to do that, right? You find a great school and you recruit from that school, or you find people with business experiences and you recruit there. Well, what if that doesn't exist? What if you live in an isolated market where you don't have a, 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 a a area that or a pipeline of great talent. So some organizations were then going to look at, well, why don't we start partnering with universities and we'll create a program for the university to make sure we have enough electrical engineers or whatever it is that we're looking for at that realm and making sure that that is, is, is that there's, we have demand. We can also help create the supply by backwards integrating. And then we looked at organizations that create their own skills programs. So once you graduate, come do our, externship for six months that kind of falls in the middle and then the other far end of it there were some really interesting oil companies in Africa they were like we don't want to import people we are done bringing people from overseas to work in our plants we want to find people on the ground we want to support our local communities and they realized they need to start with the, the public education system was lacking there was insufficient literate population to work 
So they, they created a primary school. They actually went back to the beginning of the funnel. And like, if we can create a primary school and we can get enough educated people that can read and do math, then we can actually fill the high school that can then we can start teaching the technical program that can fill the tertiary education to be able to have. And we're, we're investing. We're here to stay, which I think was such a refreshing approach for a corporation to be. We're not in and out and we'll take some oil and skedaddle, but actually we're going to invest in that pipeline. What is that role that we can play now? How can we invest in the future and making sure that we're backwards integrating and supporting and the role that we're playing to make sure that folks have the right skills. Um, and there's a couple of nonprofits that are doing that that we've partnered with, so I'm happy to to, to jump to the other end of the uh, end of the funnel, or we can keep keep here. Right, right. Now uh, that makes a lot of sense. And w- w- what I'm what I'm sensing is when there is a long term investment, that shows commitment, uh, and that that shows intention. What I always struggle with, and this goes beyond just uh, you know, the business side of things, but even on a personal level, whenever dealing with vulnerable populations and vulnerable communities, and especially in the context of reconciliation, how can you, how do you balance intentionality with the risk of being tokenistic? Massive challenge. And even as I'm, as I'm talking about, like we have been so thoughtful, um, it's been very slow to take action, which I drives me nuts, right? Like, let's just get to action. But it's like, how do we make sure that we are recruiting indigenous peoples without tokenistic, tokenizing them? And once we have, we have a, a small few, how do you make sure that they're always on the stage? And, and how do you start thinking about those? Um, it's such a slippery and challenging slope, but I think it's better to start than to not start. And so how do we get to action? How do we move? How do we become... Um, in, um, intentional and think about it, but also move to action. So 100%. I, I attended a really interesting conference earlier this year. I'm doing a lot of work also on um, anti-Black racism in Canada. And uh, we've re- released some very interesting reports. And I'm happy to talk about what we're doing with Black North right now and all kinds of exciting um, action that's going on there. But I was attending a conference external to that, actually, with a bunch of Americans. And uh, it was around the black leadership experience. And one woman was like, well, since I was a junior manager, I've been on stage. I've been made an example of like, I have, I have this weight on me because everyone's looking at if, wow, she can be successful. I can be successful, but also if she's not successful, does that mean no one that looks like me can be successful? So she just had this burden placed on her shoulders of representing all black women in her corporation. You're like, that doesn't feel fair. <laughs> so how do we um, understand that extra burden and support folks and making sure that it's not tokenistic and it's not, we, we want to elevate the voices and people want to see people that look like them. Yes, but we can't put all the burden on the few, uh, so, um, which uh, again, on all of these actions, we can't just look, to people who've experienced racism to talk about it. We need to educate ourselves as not people. So I am not a person of color. I, I need to educate myself and, and stand up for, for many things. Uh-huh. No, and th- th- that's such a fascinating point that you bring up, especially with that anecdote, uh, where I almost think that and uh, the world that we should be working towards is where 
that manager's story that a black woman in, at the top of a field in business should not be an outlier, should not be newsworthy because it's the norm. Right. And how do we get there from this? But at the same time, you would want to highlight their success because it is unfortunately an outlier right now. And how do you bring that from a fringe to the mainstay? I think I, I, there was some really nice quotes recently, but I was talking to, to one person like, I don't want to be the first. I don't want to be the only one. I want to be one of hundreds, hundreds or thousands are meant like, right. As I, yes, I being a trailblazer is important, but the role is, is, is critical that there are others like me that I'm not, not alone. Right. Uh, uh, we, we have some work to do. We have some work to do. And, uh, I think, as you were saying, it has to be more than just corporations. It has to be more than just government. It has to be at an individual level, every single day, educating ourselves and taking action where we can. Uh, how I like to see it, and do correct me if you have a better way of putting this, is it's not just about giving them the stage. It's about empowering them to want to get on the stage themselves. Uh, and I, I think that there's a difference there, a very subtle one in my mind. Uh, but I'm curious. Yeah, I think it's not, it. maybe not so much giving them the stage. So so one is enabling and ensuring that there are opportunities and then taking out barriers. So unfortunately, many populations face far more barriers than many believe. So if we think that, um, I think it's 90%, 80%, 90% of, of Black Canadians have faced discrimination in the workplace yet less than 50% of Canadians feel that, that black racism is still an issue in Canada. So the pretty big disconnect to start the conversation um, is that um, why would they face more barriers? I don't create barriers for them. So why would that be true? And those are the kinds of, of blindness that we all face, like many people face. I'm like, well, I don't see that, that that is happening. So it can't be happening. Well, what do I not see? What are the conversations happening in rooms that I'm not in? Where do I, how do I call out those microaggressions and those little things that are actually inhibiting people from reaching their full potential? And so, yes, actually microaggressions are real and black folks in the workforce today in Canada are facing more barriers than white people in the workforce today. And how is that fair? So not let's just take off the numbers for a second and just say like, if you have to come to, to work every day and code switch, so you have to actually change the vernacular you're using and act outside of your comfort zone, you're going to be exhausted by the end of the day. It is way harder for you to perform at your top performance when you're worried and stressed about, well, what if I use a word that they don't understand? What if they are asking me to act and not, not use my hands when I'm speaking or whatever it is that, that, they've been, that, that some groups have been told that is inappropriate at work? How do we just say... No, just you. We want you today. Not that other, like, and let people be themselves and unlock their potential. So I think the first step we have to do is removing these inappropriate barriers. Um, and that will already set a stage for enabling more. Uh, and then how do I stand up for it? How am I an ally? How do I, am I an ally? And I bring my allyship to work every single day to to school every day, to wherever I go, whatever I'm doing is 
how do I be an ally and stand up for, for everybody <laughs> or anybody, but it, equating to taking, taking action. Right. Not diversity. We're not strong despite the fact that we're different. We're, we're strong because of the fact that we're different. Diversity is our strength rather than an obstacle that we're overcoming in our path to greatness and empowering people to be themselves rather than abide by a majoritarian norm. 100%. And I, I think we're, we're seeing it. We're already seeing action. In the last year, we've seen action. We will see a lot more action. And again, it's starting with education. How do I understand that what terms I'm using are inappropriate? How do I understand that actually that was a microaggression that just happened? That that man that was following, there's lots of wonderful stories that you hear. And um, we had a great sharing session where our staff, our black staff, right after George Floyd's murder, were uh, able to share some of their experiences. And I empathize and I, I was like, wow, I didn't realize that this was happening or have I ever done that? And I think that was the, the eye-opening conversation that we had around the types of actions that are happening. And the gentleman was like, I was coming back from my condo, okay, coming back to my condo in the evening. I had my downtown Toronto coming from work, wearing my work clothes, holding my fob in my hand to unlock the door. And the person in front of me slammed the door closed. She looked at, she looked at me and she pulled the door closed. And he's like, so he said, why did you close the door? I live here. She said, I don't know that you live here. Right. That is like the, the, the underlying, like it's in the evening, there's a woman, there's a, a black man, and that woman was nervous. And what are the underlying things that are causing that? We had a, a gentleman on an airplane and the person said, how do you expect to the flight to me to sit beside this? Again, this is a person traveling for work, maybe one of the smartest men I've ever met. And who would say these things? But people are saying these things. And how do you have to deal with that and then also do your job and also be a good human being and everything else? It's not, there's too many barriers. We as society have to remove barriers to enable everybody to to reach their full potential. So yes, tokenism maybe, no, (laughs) I don't know. But we need to take action and we need to create opportunities. But the easiest way to create opportunities is remove barriers and then provide whatever other strokes. And uh, there's a beautiful visual that we have around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, there's a, there's this tree and the tree is on a nice big angle and there's all kinds of fruit here and there's not so much fruit way up here. And it's like, well, this is inequity. And then you say, start, you give this person a ladder so they can sort of reach the fruit that's way up here. Meanwhile, these people are just standing on the ground and grabbing all the fruit. You know, like, okay, we're starting to get better. And then we get a longer ladder so they can actually reach fruit that's similar. And then you actually prop the tree to be straight with fruit growing on both sides. It's very different. So how do you actually move to the point where we've got a straight tree where everybody has access to fruit and you don't have to be on the side of the tree to get the fruit? There's some work we have to do. But there's some interesting actions of like, so... Do I need to give them a ladder to start? Well, if there's no fruit, you got to give them a ladder. Like there's no way they're ever going to be able to get up the tree. Right. That was such a beautiful analogy that we have our fair share of analogies on the on every episode, but that was one of the most beautiful ones. And I, I think it goes to say that taking an action right now is paramount 
But just stopping right there is not enough. Oh, no. We need to constantly keep thinking about what more we can do because there is so much more that we can do. Uh, but just because what we need to get to is too far off doesn't mean we cannot start. Doesn't mean we should not start because starting somewhere is better than not starting at all. Just have to start. <laughs> just have to start. And I know you said that there is, you're hopeful for the future in this regard because there's a lot of work being done. And I'm curious, what, what, is, what are the ladders that you see in the world around us right now? So we are, we've got a great generation. So I know that most of your, your listeners here, our listeners today are, uh, are of the younger generation. Um, and I'm very hopeful. Uh, as we're looking at what folks are valuing and how they're making decisions, we're starting to see a paramount shift of understanding that money alone is not everything. And actually corporations are being held accountable to being good global citizens. And people are choosing to spend their time, their money, their effort, their life supporting things they believe in. And so there's a bit of privilege there of choosing to work in or to to buy the more expensive product that was made in, in a more um, environmentally friendly or socially conscious or et cetera way. And folks are doing that if they have the privilege. So there is a pretty big shift and we are going to see a pretty interesting shift in how the future unfolds for organizations that embrace being co <laughs> corporate socially responsible and those that don't. And uh, there will be winners and there will be losers. And I am hopeful because I appreciate this generation is making that happen. And, uh, and that, that holding everybody accountable for their actions. There is so much more accountability than there has been in the past for all of those actions. People making inappropriate comments will not be tolerated. People choosing to manufacture in inappropriate ways will not be tolerated. People pumping stuff into wherever will not be tolerated. So there's enough social conscious and that social consciousness is no, now no longer on the extreme, but actually in the middle. It's like, oh, I could pick this one or this one. This one's slightly more socially conscious. I'm gonna go there. That this costs slightly more, but it will re remove uh, environmental threats. I'll go there. So we will we will see um, a a great shift, and I appreciate that the generation that is entering the workforce now is going to be the motivators to make that happen and and drive significant change. Right, and uh, and I again I this this whole conversation comes back to intentionality where. We are intentional about those efforts, um, which is why it almost overrides the standard economics of price and demand inversely related. There's more to it than that. Uh, which is going to be really interesting because um, how do you price that into a share, share price? And right. how are actually shareholders who for a while there were forced to just ask for profits are having a, a seismic shift and they're actually saying, wait, wait. Because they know that profits long term are related to all of the rest. And that is the connection that we need to make. And it's coming. It's here. Like, this is happening. <laughs> we want to do or not. But I am optimistic for the future because I believe that the inefficient markets and the people being consumers, being 
all of us who are decision makers will force, will be the forcing mechanism to make the right decisions. So that's why one of the reasons I'm hopeful. That makes sense. I mean, hope is all we've got. And that's, that's one thing that we really, uh, we push on the podcast. What are people hopeful about? What, what makes you want to approach that light at the end of the tunnel, however long the tunnel might be. And, you know, as we, at least on this side of the world, we come out of the shadows of the pandemic for now, at least. I'm wondering what, what do you envision the future to be like? Uh, what do you want the future to be like? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't know, and I'm not a, a future predictor. Um, some of the data is, is, kind, is quite scary on the roaring 20s and the what happened in the last round of roaring 20s and the the way that we are coming out of the, the this crisis in a very Y shape of the folks that have pent up funds that have been sitting idle for 18 months that are ready to spend and those who lost their job 18 months ago and are struggling to put food on their plates. So we will we will see that dichotomy. I'm not hopeful about that, but I am hopeful on the spend. So we will see what that becomes to bear. But it is interesting in the social side of it too, of just how do we come out and how do we actually literally come out of our homes? So this weekend, this is, um, we, we went out and we went to the mall and this was, um, we've been very careful here and I very much support vaccines. So if you haven't, if you have any listeners who haven't gotten vaccinated, please go get vaccinated. This is the number one thing that you can do to help Canada to help the, the economy, to help yourselves and to keep you and your loved ones safe. So get vaccinated. Public health notice aside, um, <laughs> my husband and I are now both two, two, uh, two weeks post second vaccine and we're mm-hmm. feeling much more comfortable nice. of, of realming out. And over the, the, the long pandemic, we did not. We were not people going to stores and eating out, et cetera. Um, but we have and we've taken the kids. So we took the kids to the mall. We all wore masks. We, there was lots of space. It was very open. We waited in lines to go in stores two feet, two meters apart. Like it was, it was very safe. And my um, four-year-old looked over and said, what's that? It's like an escalator. What's an escalator, mom? Like, right. 18 months ago, <laughs> like a third of your life, you did, there was the last time you saw an escalator and he didn't know what an escalator was. So we rode the escalator up and down and there's going to be a lot of firsts. There's going to be a lot of us re-understanding how to integrate into public sector, the public society. It was the cutest moment of like, we went to a public restroom. We're just experiencing all these things for the very first time again. Um, Going out with friends, eating with friends, seeing people face to face. There are a whole bunch of social steps that we're all going to be taking that'll be quite interesting. And I think from what I've seen, appreciating, being appreciative of Wow, I am so fortunate that I had the chance to see you today. I am so fortunate that we were able to go out and have someone bring food to me on a plate and I didn't have to do the dishes. How excited am I the night I don't have to do dishes after 18 months of a lot of dishes? There's a bunch of benefits uh, and a bunch of joy that I think we're going to see. And I can already feel the change in Canada as we are getting to some pretty good numbers of optimism in the people that you're talking to and our mental health is all improving. And there's, there's that shift to, okay, how do we, how do we go back to whatever back is going to be? And we won't go back. We won't go back to the same way it was, but hopefully we'll move forward. 
and we'll take all of the great stuff that we figured out we can do online and all of the efficiencies and all of the inclusivity of being virtual and bring that with us and bring also back the human connection that we all so desperately missed over the last, I guess it's only 16 months right now. It feels like 18. Wow. Well, firstly, you know, that, that again was beautiful. But before I say anything else, I have to say that if we can, if we can plug the Spider-Man clip with the escalator writing clip, then I feel like that itself is a winner. That that's viral content right there. <laughs> but the, the rest from everything else that you said, I, I couldn't possibly put it in a better way. I, we've kept saying on this podcast every single time. And I keep saying this in my, in my real life too. And my friends can attest to it is that there is no going back. There is, there was never any chance of going back. And I actually find that term very misleading. It's, it's defeatist because it almost implies that you intentionally don't want to take the learnings from these very transformative times and imbibe them in the life that you have coming out of this. But that's, that's the way to go. And it's all about being more appreciative of the people around us, the people that we love and the, that we care, and just being more intentional with our time because we never know how much time we have to do any given thing or with any person. Uh, enjoy or, the moment, right? Enjoy the moment. <laughs> enjoy that moment in the mall. It might close again, so enjoy the moment. <laughs> But at a more macro level, uh, 100%, right, is how do we enjoy what we're experiencing and how do you find the joy in that and, and be appreciative, I think is Absolutely. critical. It's, it's all about moving forward, being intentional. It's all about moving forward and being intentional. with intention, yeah. with conviction, Absolutely. and with the curiosity to learn about the world around us and the people that we share this world with in an empathetic fashion. Uh, not in a skeptical way, but in a way that is truly passionately curious. This has been such a fascinating episode, Kate. And I knew that going into it, knowing you, that there will be so, so much here for me to learn and for our audience to learn from and coming out of it, of course, reassured. I hope you had as much fun as I did. Because uh, I, I surely did. I surely did. Uh, and hopefully, for the two of us and for the rest of the audience, as we emerge, as we see a path forward beyond the restrictions that we've been kept under all, all these months, uh, our interactions and our engagements with people are more physical, more in person, and we're more appreciative of those. But until then, we'll be back next week. Different guests, same time, different boat, same storm. Bye.